Welcome back to the program. Recently, we spoke of the 50th anniversary of Freedom Summer and the early flowering of the civil rights movement. Much has been written about the historical roots and narrative of those events. But now my guest Jacqueline Woodson tells her story and a larger story, both of her personal journey and the journey of a movement from the Deep South to the urban core of America. It's a story made all the more powerful by recent events that bring into focus the arc of that journey that ended short of its target. Jacqueline Woodson has won several Lifetime Achievement Awards. She's received three Newbery Honors and has been a National Book Award finalist twice. It is my pleasure to welcome Jacqueline Woodson here to talk about her book, Brown Girl Dreaming. Jacqueline, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Tell us a little first, Jacqueline, about the structure of this narrative, the structure of this book, which is really told in verse. Um, I decided to tell it this way because I, it, because it's a memoir, and that's how memory comes to me in these small patches of um, intense time, it seems. And so I thought keeping it as a straight narrative would um, take away from what I was trying to show on the page and do in the narrative. And so it's it's small moments, basically, that make up my one big life. And I want to talk a little bit about that because it is something that it's true in stories, it's true in movies, this sense of, of individual moments that really make up that life, that it is those moments, sometimes they're not big events, they're very small, but things that we remember that woven together really create that narrative. Yeah, I, I, I think the thing that happened with Brown Girl Dreaming, what it, what it made me realize is that our lives, and by this I mean I think everyone's life, seems in so many ways very ordinary. But when you do, as you say, look at those small moments and um, remember them or look back on them, you see that they made for a much bigger, um, not-so-ordinary story of our lives. Tell us about your early years in South Carolina. I love South Carolina. I, you know, my memory of it is that it was rich and green and beautiful and slow-moving and sweltering, and um, that, that it was all about time and place and um, and people talking and action. And I think as a young person, I wasn't aware so much of the action that was happening around me, of the intense change, of the way the South was on fire, literally, and um, even though I did hear the grown folk stories and know and learn stuff through that, I was um, filtering it through my young self. And when I went when I went to write Brown Girl Dreaming, looking back on it and knowing the context of that history I was living in, it became amazing. As a child, what sense did you have that something revolutionary was going on? Um, this is a really good question. I think, I think my memory of it is, um, my family and the people I knew being somewhat tense at times and in the lessons we got, you know, of how we were supposed to act around white people of, you know, speaking softly of not making eye contact of, um, keeping our hands to ourselves when we went into stores. Like there were all these rules that, I think a lot of kids get, but get in a different way and seem bigger because we were black. And um, and I knew something 
was charged, that there was something happening. And we had the news reports, you know. Um, we got to listen to the radio. We got to watch stuff and see that things were happening. Um, but, again, it was filter, filtered through my young self, and I knew that I was a part of something for a number of reasons. I was a part of something because I was black, and I was a part of something because I was a Jehovah's Witness, and I was a part of something because I was in the South. But I didn't make a connection about what that part was so much. Was this something that other kids talked about, that you talked to your friends about? Was there ever a sense of, of this being a subject of conversation among young people? Um, there, not not so much in the South, but definitely once I got to New York City, there was much more talk. Um, and and by that by that point, we were seven-year-old revolutionaries, <laughs> and we knew we were a part of something huge, and that we had the, this power to be uh, create change. You know, I, I was a kid when Jesse Jackson was saying, I am somebody, you know, put your fist in the air, say, I am somebody. And, um, and you know, Angela Davis and, um, you know, just all the stuff we were hearing and seeing and the reflections we were getting of people who looked like us, who are brown like us, and, and we knew we were part of something then. And, and, and there were the young lords, and a lot of my friends were Puerto Rican. So there was a lot of conversation then about who, how bad we were, in bad in a good way, mm-hmm. in bad in a powerful way. So that's when we start. That's when the conversation started happening. And it was all part of that, you know, the, the same civil rights movement of people trying to live equally, um, and be educated and, you know, have some power in the world. And, and you know, as you know, my family was part of that great migration of the people of color who moved from the south to the northern cities to for better jobs and better um, pay and better education for their children. So I knew I was part of this movement and part of this sea of change. And did kids that had grown up there in Brooklyn and grown up in New York, did they see you differently almost as an icon because you had come from the South? So many of us had come from the South. <laughs> I think they saw me as someone who spoke a little strangely. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that there wasn't a way in which we were differentiating um, amongst each other that way. But I think that once um, I got, I was in school and we were talking about slavery and the civil rights movement and and some of us had been you know boots on the on the ground there and and i think that was some place where people kind of went oh you know this world uh, but you know there was there's such a childhood confusion because i remember kids saying well were your parents slaves when we learned that blacks were slaves because they, they you know it's so hard to contextualize as a child time and place you know did it happen 300 years ago did it happen 30 years ago did it happen three years ago so there all of that stuff gets a little muddled in the child <laughs> talk about growing up the, those later years in new york and in brooklyn it was um it was interesting it was um very different whereas the south was green the city was not um and when the south was slow moving the city was fast moving and it was it was it was a cha- sea of change where the houses were further apart they were and I was now living in an apartment and um 
I, I, I remember not being happy as a child being in New York City and being ecstatic because I was in New York City with my mom, who had left a little bit earlier to find a place for us to live here. Now, you know, I'm a New Yorker to the bone. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you live? Where did you grow up? Where were you living in New York at the time? When we first moved here, I lived in a, a neighborhood called Brownsville. That's a very underserved community, and it's still quite underserved. From there, um, we moved to Bushwick, where my mother rented an apartment in a, the house that she finally ended up able to buy. Um, and, and Bushwick was a neighborhood that, and I talk about this in um, Brown Girl Dreaming, that was um, predominantly black and Latino people who were striving um, uh, um, some single moms, a lot of people who were immigrants, um, and and people struggled. It was a neighborhood of struggle, and um, and now that the same house that I grew up in, I don't live in there anymore, but we still own it. Um, Bushwick has become an artist community, so people got pushed out of Williamsburg because it became too expensive. So now there are a lot of young white artists living in Bushwick. Um, and the neighborhood I live in now is Park Slope, which is mm. a very different neighborhood than the one I grew up in. Very different indeed. Mm -hmm. Talk about becoming more and more, I mean, as you say, you were seven-year-old radicals, the process of becoming politicized, of of understanding more and more as you got older about the movement and what was going on and how you saw, wanted to see your role in it. I think... Um... As a young person of color, there is a way that I was in the world that we all tend to be. Back in the day, I don't know if it's so much so now, um, in the world, you're born, you know, kind of feet first in the movement, whether you're actively involved in it or, or um, just taking it in from the sidelines or just seeing your family struggle. I mean, you couldn't be from the South and not know someone in your family who had been lynched. You couldn't be from the South and hadn't, didn't know someone who had a cross burned on their property. You couldn't be from the South and not know someone who got jailed for because they were part of the Civil Rights Movement. It was just what it was, in the same way that it's hard to be African-American in a country where, you know, the laws are so jacked up that the percentage of African-American men incarcerated is phenomenal. And so you can't be African American and not know someone in jail. So this is kind of like, you know, the 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 struggle and the sense of needing to be part of a political movement and creating change and creating a greater good. That's kind of like what I was born to do. <laughs> it's it's not even a question of like saying, you know, something like school, I don't want to go today. Like I don't I don't want to fight today. No, that, that you don't even have a choice as long as the system is the system that it is and it's a system that was created not for people of color but against us. I mean, we came to this country <laughs> against our will with to work until we died for no pay. That was the whole plan for us, right? We were going to work until we died as enslaved people. And then we didn't die. So now what? <laughs> you know, and the incredible and the amazingness of uh, people who would not die, who didn't die, but went on to you know write books and change laws and be president and all of these ways in which we have historically survived. Like it's part of this fight that we came out, you know, came from the womb fighting. And so I, I have nothing to compare it to. I've never been white. You know, I've never been anything other than who I am. So I've never known 
a life where my role in it wasn't to create change by any means necessary. And for me, that change has been through writing. This is the gift the universe gave me to um, do the work I was put here to do. And whether I knew it when I was 7 or 11 or 15, um, I, whether I was able to articulate it, probably not, but a part of me always knew. This river always ran through me, this river of like desire for change. As you were writing Brown Girl Dreaming, was there anything that surprised you about your recollections, that when you sat down to do this, you found you remembered things differently, or or that you had more profound recollection of certain events that surprised you? I think what was most surprising is how once I started writing, how much I did remember and how much I knew um, even though I was writing it to figure out some stuff, there was so much in my history that I knew just because it had always been talked about. It had never gone away. Um, so that was surprising. It was like the floodgates open, and I was suddenly back in my mother's life in, down south. I was back in Ohio. And, and um, you know, one thing I didn't know that my aunt is a genealogist, and I thank her in the book, my father's sister, I didn't know about my great-great-grandfather who was who fought in the war um i knew about my grandfather going to the war but so there were there were things i didn't there were definitely things i discovered but um there was also a lot that i never forgot and talk a little bit about how you imagine your own child reading this and reading your story (laughs) Uh, well my kids are 12 and 6 now and um they're funny. My daughter may read it. I, you know, much to her chagrin, she might have to read it for <laughs> school. Um, but she, and she has a lot of friends who are fans of mine. It was so funny because she was on a school bus and another friend had her phone. And the friend, she told me the friend said, "You just got a text from Jacqueline Woodson. Do you know Jacqueline Woodson?" And I'm like, "You mean you didn't even tell him I was your mom?" <laughs> <laughs> so, so she's just now coming into discovering that this is what I do and that it has a place. Um, It's going to be interesting because their lives are so incredibly different from my own, and their struggles are going to be so different from my own, and it's going to be interesting to see where they land and what relevance the literature will have for them. I mean, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully they were born with a lot of strength or they've gathered it along the way and they're ready for the struggle. But, but, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how, how they fight. Jacqueline Woodson. The book is Brown Girl Dreaming. Jacqueline, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me and for your great questions. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.